YA is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new YA books to read but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. And TBR is available also as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, alongside Eric Smith. We are recording on Monday, August 17th, 2020, and I don't know. I don't know. This has been like the longest and shortest summer in existence. I agree. I'm tired all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the time is going. It's it is wild. Yeah, it's it's something. And you have a big week this week. What's going on? Oh, I do. It's funny because oh yeah, people will listen be listening to this this week. But uh, yeah. yeah, my my anthology comes out tomorrow, and then a whole bunch of events this week and next week, which will be fun. It's just. You know this, and I think any author will say this, like the weeks leading up to a book release are exhausting, even if Mm -hmm. you're not doing anything particularly grand or exciting. It's just a lot of tying up of loose ends, a lot of promotion, and I don't know, I get sick of like talking about my stuff, you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yes, I'm excited, but also like, holy cow, just put it on the shelf already and like, let it do what it's going to do. Yeah, I agree. The The virtual stuff is it's a little tricky right now. It's hard, you know, like you mm-hmm. put all that energy out and you're like waiting for it to come back, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And it could be, it could be, ah, it could be rough. I yeah. get it. <laughs> I am. Um, I have had this like philosophy in my head for forever and I'll share it for anybody who's listening, whoever has like a big project that they've been working on and reach that point where it's done, you're ready to turn it in. And basically, the philosophy is whatever you had planned to do that doesn't get done, nobody else is going to know except you. So like, I wanted to do 50 million things to prepare. And then I realized that nobody's going to know except for me that it didn't get done. And something about that is very freeing. And so this weekend, instead of trying to do 50 million things, I was like, you know where I'm going to be best served if I literally lay on my couch for two days and read books and not (laughs) worry about it. And It was great. It was exactly what I needed. Sure, I didn't write this thing or that thing that, you know, maybe maybe could have done something good, but there's a value in also calming down and slowing down and taking care of yourself that doesn't have a price you can put on it. Yeah. You know, it's funny, uh, listening to you say all that, all I could think about was uh, my wedding, (laughs) because that's the same thing. Like, it's all the stuff where it's like, you know, everything that goes wrong, no one's going to know about it except you. All the stuff Mm -hmm. that goes planned. I mean, unless, like, something catches on fire, like, then sure, everyone's going to know because they all saw it. But, like, you know, no no one knows that there was a chair missing or... Right. Nobody knows that the napkins with your monogram on it, like, didn't show up. 
Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> and it's annoying and you're frustrated, but at the same time, you're like, nobody cares. What they're going to walk away with is not, oh, you know, those napkins were surely lacking, but instead they're going to walk away with, that was a good party, you know? Yeah. Don't invite the napkin person. <laughs> oh, don't, don't do that. So what have you been reading? What's, what's going on? So this weekend, I blew through Girl Unframed by Deb Coletti, which has something like seven-star reviews, and I have not heard many people talking about it. That's so wild. Coletti has written just a tremendous number of YA books as well. She wrote a few adult books, and I think this year released her first middle-grade book, uh, which will be a series. But she has always been sort of the staple there that people don't talk about as much as they think they should. And this particular book was so good. It was, it's being marketed as a thriller slash mystery, which I think is the problem. It is not Mm. that. You kind of know immediately what's going to happen. So it's not like twist, not like, you know, surprise, not like whodunit. It's like, well, you know what's going to happen. And ultimately, it's a book about the ways girls are seen socially as either a Madonna or a whore is the best way to to put it. And the main character, Sydney, turns 16 and suddenly notices all of these weird comments she gets from men in her life and how she struggles with like wanting to enjoy herself and wanting to feel sexy and yet not wanting to be under this spotlight for this as well. And so it's really about that push and pull, that tension in being female and how to navigate the waters of owning who you are versus not wanting other people to own who you are. And the book has a murder in it. So I guess that's the part where it's being called a thriller. But like I said, you know, pretty much chapter two, what's going to happen and, Mm. you know, who's going to go down. There's no surprise. But it was great. It was so compelling. It was well written. It was a delight to read. And I hope more people pick it up. And like I said, it has something like seven starred reviews, like every starred review you can imagine for this book. And so I suspect we'll be seeing it pop up on some lists at the end of the year. Yeah. And you know, and it's so wild hearing you talk about a new book from her already. Cause like I could have sworn like a heart in the body of the world came out like yesterday, <laughs> even though it, it came out in like 2018. But like I remember it was back on my radar last year because the prints and everything, mm-hmm. and paperback. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> what about you? What have you been reading? Uh, so there have been, been a lot of different things, but yeah, I'm still pretty heavy on my, like, romance and rom-com trip in, like, the adult space, and I just started reading Vanessa Yu's Magical Paris Tea Shop by Roselle Lim, and I just really loved her first magical romance novel, and this one, I don't know, like, I just want to bite into the book, like, there's all this, like, beautiful food imagery and lyrical prose in it, I just, I just really love it, and her and I are going to be in an anthology together next year in, in the YA space, uh, so it's been really fun getting into all of her adult books. Oh, and I finished Agnes at the End of the World, which is like the opposite <laughs> of fluffy rom-coms, uh, but just like so, so good. I, I'm glad I listened to everyone who's yelling at me to, to <laughs> wrap up that book. Oh, and I bought the Love Creekwood novella. Mm. Uh, I haven't dug into it yet, but I was, it's so funny. And like, it's, it's like a total like specific to book consumers thing, but I was like getting so annoyed that it wasn't on my shelf yet. Like I have... I have every Becky Abatali book, and, like, I feel like there's, like, been, like, a conscious design with the covers and the way they're, the way the the colors are and everything that makes you want to have each book on your shelf, because, like, Simon is red, and Leah is that, like, 
light blue color and upside down unrequited is a dark blue. And I kept looking at them and going like, oh, wow, that splash of yellow from the novella is going to look really great in that lineup. And I'm convinced they did this on purpose. Like, I just, I, <laughs> I, I needed to have it right there. So, yeah, I am really excited to have it look nice in that little space there. <laughs> and, um, oh, and my pre-order of Ghosting, colon, A Love Story, finally came in. And it's it's another adult rom-com, but it's co-written by the YA author Sarvanast Hash who wrote Virtually Yours and The Geek's Guide to Unrequited Love, and I'm just a few pages in already, and I, I really love it. So, rom-coms, opposite of a rom-com, and then a book I had to buy just to have it on my shelf. That, that's, <laughs> that's what it's looking like right now. Honestly, that feels like the most Eric description of like your <laughs> reading life that I could think of. <laughs> let's, uh, let's hit our first sponsor and then dive in, because I think this first topic is... Nice and fitting to what we were just talking about. So our first sponsor is Ray Bearer by Jordan Ifwego. What if you were sworn to protect the one you were born to destroy? Teresa has always longed for the warmth of a family, and when she is chosen as one of the Crown Prince's Council of Eleven, she becomes linked to the other council members with a magical bond deeper than blood. But her mother, known as the Lady, has cursed Teresa with a command she is compelled to obey, kill the Crown Prince once she gains his trust. Teresai won't stand by and become someone's pawn, but is she strong enough to choose a different path for herself? That is Ray Bearer by Jordan Ifueco, and this one has a really great cover as well. The cover is wild! Mm -hmm. Oh my god, all the gold and, like, the portrait in the middle, like, that's another one I want on my shelf! (laughs) Like, ah, these art directors, the nerve! (laughs) The, uh... (laughs) The author had this brilliant tweet the other day that I keep thinking about, and she wrote something like, um, somebody tags me on Instagram about how much they love my work and, you know, this very effusive thing, and I respond and I tell them thanks with crumbs, like, crawling down my shirt and I haven't washed my hair in days, and this person's (laughs) like, this is the best thing ever to happen to me if, you know, an author responded to me. (laughs) I was laughing so hard because I was like, yeah. That's real. <laughs> yep, I feel that. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about romance. And specifically, so August is Romance Month. And this year there have been a lot of really great YA romances. But given that this year has been, you know, 2020, some of them seem to have been overlooked. Mm-hmm. So we're going to... Yeah. We're going to highlight a bunch, some we've read, some we haven't, so that you could read about love and maybe take your mind off of, you know, everything else for a little bit. That sounds like a good plan. Do you want to start? Sure, absolutely. Um, So I think my number one pick in this space when it comes to romances people might have missed and that I I desperately want them to read is uh, I Kissed Alice by Anna Birch. I loved this book so much, and I, I like, hugged it several times while I was reading it, and you will too. In it, we meet two girls named Rhodes and Alana who are in a fierce competition for an art scholarship that promises to bring them to the school of their dreams, um, and the two just absolutely cannot stand one another. They are at odds, they are battling for the scholarship, they don't like each other. But surprise! Turns out they've been working anonymously on a webcomic together for years and have no idea who one another are. And there are some feelings that are starting to happen in that anonymous space. Uh, the book is paired with these beautiful comic book illustrations of Victoria Ying, which adds like a lot more depth to the already lovely book. Pick it up. It's a fun, geeky, swoony read. I don't know. It feels like it was written for me. And I, I love <laughs> those kind of books. What was the book again? 
Oh, I Kissed Alice by Anna Birch. I am going to note before I dive into all of my picks that some of them, since I haven't read them, I don't know if they're actually capital letter, letter are romances or love stories. But Ah, uh, yes. So caveat, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, it's actually not a romance, it's still a love story at the heart. So <laughs> that's always a challenge when you haven't read it and don't know 100% for sure how it's going to end. But I will say this first book for sure is, and that's I'll Be the One by Lila Lee. I read this book at the very beginning of summer and enjoyed the heck out of it. It's so much fun. And if you aren't a K-pop fan, which I know nothing about K-pop, and so that's not a slight at that music at all, you'll still love it. This is the first book in a series, which makes me so excited. And to borrow an Eric-ism, this is a hug in the form of a book. <laughs> so the story follows a main character named Sky, who is a fat bisexual Korean-American girl who is trying out for the opportunity to become the next K-pop star on a reality show. And then she meets Henry, who is this model with this massive Instagram following, and she finds herself falling for him deeply. But is he just his image or is he something more? This is a book about big ambition and dreams, as well as how following your heart's desires doesn't need to contradict following your huge goals. So it was so fun. It made me smile. And it just it felt so good to read the whole time. And that's I'll Be the One by Lila Lee. Yay, I've been meaning to read that one. Oh, so many books. So many books. Mm -hmm. um, so my next one is uh, The Falling in Love Montage by Ciara Smith. Um, I feel like we've talked about this one, but it just came out in June. Uh, in it, we meet I do not know how to pronounce the main character's name. I am sorry. Sayoris, who is wrestling with uh, the early onset dementia diagnosis that runs in her family. Uh, it's a condition that's hit her mom pretty hard, leaving her unable to remember her or her name. Uh, fearing this future, she decides, nope, no love, no relationships. What's the point? But then she meets this girl who starts to change her mind. And the two embark on a traditional romance, uh, or rather a, a, a non-traditional romance, uh, a journey of montage scenes that you see in every romance. But oops, feelings happen anyway. <laughs> and I feel like that's maybe one of my favorite romantic tropes in recent years. It's the, the oops feelings <laughs> trope. <laughs> and that is the falling in love montage by Ciara Smith. My next pick is More Than Just a Pretty Face by Siad M. Masood, which just came out, I believe. Ooh. So I haven't read this one. Here's a little blip. It's been on my radar for a while. Here's the description. Danielle Jelani doesn't lack confidence. He may not be the smartest guy in the room, but he's funny, gorgeous, and going to make a great chef one day. His father doesn't approve of his career choice, but that hardly matters. What does matter is the opinion of Danielle's longtime crush, perfect in all ways Caval, and her family, who considers him a less-than-ideal arranged marriage prospect. When Danielle gets selected for Renaissance Man, a school-wide academic championship, it's the perfect opportunity to show everyone he's smarter than they think. He recruits the brilliant, totally uninterested in him Bisma to help him with the competition. But the more time Danielle spends with her, the more he learns from her, the more he cooks for her, the more he realizes that happiness may be staring him right in his pretty face. That's more than just a pretty face by Sayed M. Masood. Oh, I love that. Oh, <laughs> boy. Let me see. Uh, my next one 
is uh, The Four Days of You and Me by Miranda Kennelly. Um, so I love Miranda's novels. Uh, and this one was the first set outside of her universe of other books. The, um, oh dear, what are, what is the name of the, the universe? Hundred Oaks, right? Hundred Oaks. Yeah, yeah. There's like, what, there's like 11 of those? There's, there's a, a whole ton bunch. Of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which, if you've never read them, they're super fun and they all have little Easter eggs to the other books in them. Uh, but in this one, it's uh, sitting on my shelf waiting to be read, so here's a quick blip from the book's page. Every May 7th, the students at Coffee County High School take a class trip. And every year, Lulu's relationship with Alex Rovales gets a little more complicated. Freshman year, they went from sworn enemies to more than friends after a close encounter in an escape room. It's been hard for Lulu to quit Alex ever since. Through breakups, makeups, and dating other people, each year's class trip brings the pair back together and forces them to confront their undeniable connection. From the Science Museum to Amusement Park, from New York City to London, Lulu learns one thing is for sure, love is the biggest trip of all. So this book takes you along their relationship over the course of four years, and I'm such a sucker for books that play with time, uh, and I can't wait to finally sit down uh, and inhale this. And that's uh, Four Days of You and Me by Miranda Kennelly. My next pick is Late to the Party by Kelly Quindlin. And again, haven't read this one. It's been staring at me for a long time. Here's the description. 17 is nothing like Cody Teller imagined. She's never crashed a party, never stayed out too late. She's never even been kissed. And it's not just because she's gay. It's because she and her two best friends, Maritza and Jacori, spend more time in their basement watching Netflix than engaging with the outside world. So when Maritza and Jacori suggest crashing a party, Cody is highly skeptical. Those parties aren't for kids like them. They're for cool kids, for straight kids. But then Cody stumbles upon one of those cool kids, Ricky, kissing another boy in the dark, and an unexpected friendship is formed. In return for never talking about that kiss, Ricky takes Cody under his wing and draws her into a wild summer filled with late nights, new experiences, and one really cute girl named Lydia. The only problem? Cody never tells Maritza or Jacori about any of it. Late to the Party is an ode to late bloomers and wallflowers everywhere. Aww. Yeah, that's Late to the Party by Kelly Quinlan. I love that. Late bloomers and wallflowers. Mm-hmm. I had to I had to keep that in the like it was way down at the bottom of the description, you know, when you get the author information and stuff, and I was yeah. like, that's too good not to include. That is. Uh so next one I just have a quick blip here because I think we just talked about mm. this, and that's uh Now That I Found You by mm-hmm. Christina Forrest. I think you talked about yes. this. In, uh... It was so good. Well, yeah, it's about a a teen star trying to claw her way back into the business by bringing her former star grandmother back into the spotlight while falling for a teen musician who is helping her find her and i cannot wait to get my hands on this like right after you talked about it i pre-ordered a copy uh and it comes out later this month right yeah Mm -hmm. yeah it's it's a total eric book you'll love it (laughs) my next pick is one that comes out in october it comes out october 6th but it sounded really good so i wanted to include it and that's A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow by Laura Taylor Namie. And here's the blip. Teenage master of Cuban cuisine, Lila Reyes, is eager to inherit her family's Miami bakery along with her sister, Pilar. But between spring and graduation, Lila's abuela dies, her best friend abandons her, and her longtime boyfriend dumps her. Fearing Lila's emotional health, her parents defy her wishes and entrust her summer to family and their Winchester, England inn. 
Even though she's been given a space to cook at the inn, she longs for Miami, the seat of her Cuban roots. Being a Miami Cuban baker is her glorified past and destined future, forged by years of training by her loving abuela. Days into her stay, Orion Maxwell barges into Lila's in-kitchen with a delivery from his family's tea shop. A nuance at first, opposite ingredients soon learn to blend. Orion befriends Lila, introducing her to his mates and devouring her food, Comida Cubana. Orion entertains her with this mental collection of superstitions and sweeps her into onto his vintage motorbike. He wraps cold, underdressed Lila in wool cardigan and becomes her personal tour guide. His mom's early-onset dementia gives Orion a unique outlook. He never asks too much of the world, accepting what he can't control. Lila soon discovers this British boy brings empathy to her loss because he's living on his own. Before long, Lila can't control the route of her own heart as she begins to fall for more than a new love. England has charmed her, and a special opportunity in London tempts her. As her return ticket looms, Lila feels impossibly caught between two flags. Hearts aren't supposed to split like this, between a beautiful boy and a beautiful family, between exploring an uncharted future in a rich new place, and honoring Abuela's treasured legacy. You know what this sounds like? Um, Sweet Salty Bitter which came out earlier this year, and it has, I can't think of the author's name, but I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. And I know we talked about it with food books, but it sounded very similar. Like there was a, a death in the family, and then there's a trip abroad, and sparks, of course, begin to, to fly. This particular book was A Cuban Girl's Guide to Tea and Tomorrow by Laura Taylor Namy, and that comes out October 6th. Yes, I can't wait for this one. I really love her first book, Library of Lost Things. Mm. Uh... So yeah, I'm excited to pick this one up. Do you want to hit our next sponsor before we we dive into our completely different topic? (laughs) Let's do it. So uh, our next sponsor is Sky Hunter by Marie Lu. From the number one New York Times bestselling author Marie Lu comes an immersive world where the only hope against overwhelming evil is a team of warriors willing to sacrifice everything to save what they love. The Carcina Federation has conquered a dozen countries, leaving Mara as one of the last free nations in the world. Refugees flee to its borders to escape a fate worse than death, transformation into mutant war beasts known as ghosts. The Strikers, Mars' elite fighting force, are trained to stop these monsters. But as the number of ghosts grows, defeat seems inevitable until one Striker refuses to give up hope. That is Sky Hunter by Marie Lu, which I can't wait to read and devour because I read all of her books. <laughs> I was going to say, talk about an Eric book. <laughs> yes. Like, all of her books are Eric books. I, I can't wait. So... Let's talk about a topic that was making some waves on ye old social media last week. Ah, uh, yes. Ye old. And that topic is IP projects. So here's a little backstory for those who did not see it play out. What happened was that a white author who I will keep nameless tweeted about how the bulk of this last week's YA bestseller list in the New York Times was, quote, soulless IP projects, and wasn't that a shame? That particular sentiment set off so many interesting conversations about what an IP book is, and that author who tweeted it ended up backtracking deeply and apologizing because it was very clear they were very much clueless about what IP projects actually were. And not only that, but the tweet was definitely leaning on racist if you look at what 
the IP titles on the bestseller list were. So uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about what IP projects are and for readers, listeners who are like, ugh, insider publishing baseball, I promise it's accessible <laughs> and something that you have likely read and experienced and enjoyed yourself. Yeah, it's true. I personally love IP projects. Uh, my first published book in my author life is actually an IP oh. book. Uh, yeah, The Geek's Guide to Dating was an IP project at Quirk Books. It was brewed up in-house and they had me come write it. And uh, and, and one thing we could talk about when it comes to IP is how it, it tends to kickstart the writing mm-hmm. life of a lot of people, particularly you know marginalized writers. Yep. Um, and when we talk about IP projects – you know, as an excellent way to, you know, get writers in, that's exactly what it was for me. You know, publishers come up with ideas in-house uh, and seek out new writers to write them. And before we get too deep, IP means intellectual property, which... Oh, yeah. That's yeah. an important thing to... Yeah. yeah. I mean, we know what it is, but the average listener probably is like, what does that even mean? But it, it just mean? means that it's a book developed inside a publishing house, or it could be a book packager and the copyright for the idea is generally held by that place sometimes that isn't the case but for the most part like your example is great quirk books came up with this idea and had you write it but they created the idea but you got to execute it yeah so they could create the idea most and most ip projects will be like this where they'll, they'll create an idea sometimes they'll be like a loose outline or like a synopsis of what they want to see there uh, and then the publisher holds on to, you know, generally holds on to a lot of the rights and, and goes around and, and sells them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some IP projects are ghostwritten, but not all. So like, for example, yours is not ghostwritten, but no, there are no. some that, that are. And in recent years, particularly I'd say like the last five years or so, we've seen a lot more IP work than usual because we're seeing more franchise work, which is likely, I think, where we're seeing the conversation happen a bit more and more readers are sort of noticing this. So think Star Wars books, tie-in books to big media projects. We've talked about those on the show a number of times. Oh, yeah. And those are a big part of it, but that's not it. I mean, there are a number of standalone books that are also IP projects that have nothing to do with a franchise, but rather an editor wants to work on a particular type of story, and they will seek out a writer for it. And as you mentioned, a lot of times this can be a great opportunity for new writers, particularly marginalized authors. Yeah, absolutely. It's that foot in the door there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's why you talk about like franchises and Star Wars, because like, you know, books by authors like you know E.K. Johnson and Delilah Dawson, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Preeti Chibber. Mm-hmm. Um, or and I remember talking about this book and like nerding out about it, like Tess Sharp's The Evolution of Claire, the, the mm-hmm. Jurassic Park book. Like, oh my god, I remember picking that up and being like, this is exactly what I would have inhaled as a teen. I think people forget that I shouldn't say people, that's a broad generalization. People who are critical of IP books forget that the reason people want to work on these sorts of books is because they're popular. Like this is what readers want, right? Particularly if it's a franchise, like the one you mentioned, it's a Jurassic Park book. Like I know, like that's the dream. Right, it's got a fandom. So one, it's going to sell well. Two, the author gets to work on a project with a franchise that they love. It's sort of a win-win in both sides of the case because you know the book's going to do fine. And also, you know that the writer is going to have a heck of a time writing it, too. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. If I could get a Magic the <laughs> Gathering IP project in my writer life, I feel like it would, like, 
it would justify all the arguments I ever had with my parents as a kid. You know? like, <laughs> this, is, this, this is a waste of time. Oh, yeah, mom? Well, <laughs> look at this book you're not going to read, you know, and that'll, that'll, that'll show them. <laughs> so a lot of times authors take these projects because they love the franchise. But for another, like, decent reason that they take them is that this is how they can have full-time careers as writers. It gives them an opportunity to have a steady stream of work in a way that sometimes publishing all of your own materials doesn't. So this can be sort of that, like, supplement. You know, they, they work on this project, but they're also working on their own project separately. And it's a win-win. Like, there's no one really loses in this. And instead, it's... One of the few ways, I mean, I'll just outright say it, it's one of the few ways I think that authors can have full-time careers as writers because there's not a whole lot of money in in publishing. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I, we just brought up that Jurassic Park book. But uh, if you follow Tess Sharp on Twitter, she's talked about this like mm-hmm. quite, quite a few times. Um, I highly recommend uh, looking her up and seeing what she has to say. Yeah, because she talked, too, about how one of her strengths as a writer, she's a very fast writer. So mm-hmm. she can write a lot of these IP projects pretty quickly. And some are under her name, some are not. But it's like her skill as a writer is in her speed and ability to deliver fast so that she can then put the other time she has into developing her own projects, which I think is brilliant. It's a really smart way to make what can be a very challenging career to develop into a career that thrives. Yeah, absolutely. And other authors that do that, like Ashley Poston, who I think mm-hmm. you're going to talk about in a bit, and, and Zoraida Cordova, like it's uh, it's super smart. And I, I will say, when this conversation was popping up on Instagram, I was kind of surprised at the number of authors who said that they did it, and I had no idea. But I don't make a habit of checking the copyright page, which... Oh, yeah. For readers who are like, is the book I love an IP book? This isn't always the case, but often you can tell if you go to the copyright page and it won't be necessarily the author who's listed, but the publishing house or if it's a book package or sometimes the name of that. So like Alloy Books is a good example is you'll see that as the copyright holder instead of whoever the author on the cover might be. But like I said, that's Often, but not always, because sometimes the author is able to keep the copyright, which is, um, I think, a plus on their side, too. Yeah. You know what scene I'm thinking about right now? I don't know if you saw Young Adult with Charlie Theron. Did you, did you watch that? Years and years ago. So there's like a moment in that movie where, you know, she's a YA author who writes for like a book package. Or she writes like mm-hmm. a Babysitter's Club-esque series. And she goes into a bookstore to like offer to sign some stock. And there's just like a big pile of her book in like a clearance pile and the bookseller is like well no your name's not on the cover and she's like yeah well look and he, she opens it up on the copyright page like you see her name all the way down at the bottom <laughs> and she starts signing them and he's like no what are you doing you can't do that like and like it's it is hilarious i i love that movie <laughs> i was gonna just briefly talk about some of the ip work that you might know or may not know because some of these were new to me so geekerella ashley poston that series is ip work and then the two that really sparked this whole initial conversation were the avatar kyoshi ya books by fce this is where i make that comment about how the tweet 
was uh, a little bit racist in that these two books hit the bestseller list, which is incredible because they're by an author of color, but also Avatar is huge and has been for a while. So it's like, of course, these books are going to sell well. Yi has written other books. So this is going to be, I think, a huge boon to his career in terms of the backlist titles that readers may not already be familiar with. And you really like that that Epic Crush book, right? I remember, I remember you talking about that. I didn't read that one, but... Um, Many book writers absolutely loved that okay. series. Yeah. I've probably talked about it before because it's been, you know, one of those like popular with, with staff and contributors. Yeah. So then in the conversation on tweets, Zoraida Cordova talked about how some of her books were IP books. Lamar Giles said some of his books were IP books. Five Feet Apart by Rachel Lippincott and I can't remember the co-author on that one, but those are copyrighted to CBS. They're not copyrighted to the author. And then I wanted to put this in there and I'll link to it in the show notes, but Tell Me Everything by Sarah Enney, which came out last year, and I really enjoyed that one. The story behind the whole book is really fascinating because it is an IP book, but Sarah has the copyright to it. And so she, in an episode of her podcast, First Draft Podcast, talks with her agent, I believe, and talks about how her and her editor came up with this idea and how they they it together. Yeah. So for listeners who are like, I want to know a little bit more. That's a great episode. And like I said, I'll link it in the show notes. What else do you want to say, add? Yeah, it's just like, I I, I just I don't want people getting like, and and I saw this conversation happening on Twitter, too, where people were like, oh, you know, like, don't get turned off buy a book just because you hear it's IP, like, absolutely do not do Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) Uh, You know, all of publishing is a big collaborative effort, right? no matter who comes up with that particular idea. Mm -hmm. And I really credit IP books for, geez, like, reigniting my love of reading as a teenager, you know? Like, I become pretty disillusioned with the fact that, like, my school only gave us, like, copies of 1984 and, like, beat-up copies of Shakespeare and, like, if it wasn't for stumbling on, like, dollar paperbacks of, like, Magic the Gathering books and, like, Diablo and StarCraft novels, like, I don't know if I would have sort of ended up on the path that I am right mm-hmm. now. So, uh, yeah, like, IP, oh, IP can absolutely bring people back into reading. Right. And I feel like IP books, because they are often tied to some kind of franchise people are familiar with, are such a great tool for just making stories more accessible and more broad and bigger. And it's like, why limit a story when there's so much that can be explored? And particularly Mm -hmm. when so much can be explored by authors whose backgrounds and voices don't often get to have the same opportunity to play in these worlds. Like, what a treat that we get all of this. I agree. Yeah, two of my my authors in my agent life got to be in the the Star Wars anthology Mm -hmm. that's coming Mm -hmm. out soon. And like, that was like such a, oh my goodness, just getting to be in that sandbox is, is amazing. Right. And that, and I think that's sort of the perfect way to describe it. It's a sandbox. And yeah. often, even if the idea is not yours, you get to put your spin on it. And even if you are tied to a pretty tight outline, whatever it is you bring to the story still comes through. Like you're not mm-hmm. losing anything in that story. Your IP work is not heartless, which was i think the big like tipping point in that tweet it's like wait a minute you don't actually understand how these work these aren't like soulless projects people pour all their energy and effort and talent into them yeah i think i think that's a good (laughs) a good talk on that so 
yay IP books and I don't even have our outro. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, way to go, Kelly. It's been a week. Can you tell? (laughs) Hooray for IP and support romance novels that might have been overlooked. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for tuning in to the show this week. If you have any feedback, you're welcome to leave it on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors for this episode today. And thank you to our audio editor, Jen Zink, who makes us sound way better than we actually do when we (laughs) record these podcasts. And we will talk to y'all again in two weeks. Bye. Bye.